Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, good day once again, everybody. Thanks for hopping on board the latest edition of Gunner One, the podcast. It is brought to you by Patterson Square Garden. I'm Derek Gunn. Well, as we sit here today, I'm still in disbelief. It wasn't that long ago that your 76ers were leading this series two games to one against the Atlanta Hawks. And I'm thinking this series is going to be over in five games. Now, all of a sudden, After watching this team twice in a span of three days, we sit here with the Sixers in a 3-2 hole, and we're talking about doing a eulogy for this team after the second round of the playoffs, and I can't believe I'm saying this. Now, it ain't over yet, folks, but it does not look good for the 76ers. And I, like so many people, sit here in a state of shock after what I've witnessed this week. But to help calm me, to help me to ha- see a, a better ray of light, I brought in a guy uh, who really knows the 76ers. He covers them for the Philly Voice. Excellent writer. I advise you to read his stuff because it is always on point. He is Kyle Newbick. Kyle, what's up, my brother? I, I don't know if I'm going to be the positive ray of light. That Come, you're on, looking for, Come on, man. Come on. Come on, man. But, you know, I'll certainly shoot it to you straight. That's all uh, That's all I can do. That's all any of us I can do. Kyle, 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 tell me this. How do you blow a 26-point third quarter lead? How do you blow an 18-point lead going into the fourth quarter? How do you blow a 10-point lead with less than six minutes to play? How is that possible? Well, let's say this. It's a team effort when you blow a lead. (laughs) It's that big, right? Like this. You know, we could, and I, I wrote a, a scorching column about Ben Simmons today, and obviously we'll probably get into him specifically yep. at some point, but they don't lose that big of a lead just because of Ben Simmons. They lose because Doc Rivers plays bench lineups that haven't worked at all in this series and continue to not work in the second half as that lead is dwindling away. They lost because Tobias Harris gave them basically nothing in the second half. And, you know, frankly, for most of that game on offense, which that's what he's here to do. He's here to score and he did very little of it. 
And, you know, like I wouldn't put him anywhere near the top of the list of their concerns, but Joel Embiid, after a huge first half, was not as good in that second half. And yeah, I believe he had four turnovers. He reverted to some, you know, really sloppy possessions out of the post. He's not trusting his teammates, reverting to some old bad habits. It, it takes a village to lose a game like that. And, and so that's the, that's the cleanest way I can explain it is that's a team loss in the same way that we will talk about team wins a lot of the time. Give me your professional opinion on Ben Simmons. You, you watch this team closely. How bad is he really hurting with that knee? Ben Simmons or Joel Embiid, you mean with the knee? I'm sorry, Joel Embiid. I'm sorry. Yeah. Joel so, Embiid. you know, I, I, I don't want to, it sounds like you, you're giving him an excuse, right? Because the guy is still capable of scoring 37 points and he's yeah. healthy enough yeah. to do that. But you do see at times when his body hits the floor or he goes to grab his knee or even like he goes, he drives attacking a closeout and you can see that he wants to go up and, and really dunk on somebody, but he just doesn't have the explosiveness that he had maybe in January, February, even March before he eventually suffered that knee injury earlier this year. I, I just I, I think you can tell he's compromised. What I would say is that him being physically compromised is not an excuse for a lot of the errors that he's made over the past two games specifically. I think the bigger problem has not been physically, but has been the mental mistakes. You know, he's getting double teamed and instead of trying to find the open guy and, you know, he has to be the creator for this team, because as we've seen, Ben Simmons doesn't want to touch the ball late. So if pressure is coming towards Joel Embiid, that means somebody is open and he has to take it upon himself to find them. And he's not even trying to. He's trying to play, as Doc Rivers said after game four, he's trying to play hero ball. And I know that he didn't direct that complaint at Joel specifically, but he's the guy who's ultimately finishing a lot of these possessions. Uh, maybe he wouldn't have to if he had a better, you know, supporting cast around him or a supporting cast around him that was, you know, living up to their contracts and, and the roles that they're supposed to play. But, you know, he's the superstar on this team. He's the MVP level candidate on this team. And that's ultimately the blame is always going to fall on some level on his shoulders. And, you know, that, that comes with the territory. Here's my medical opinion on, on Joel Embiid. I think, especially the last two games, he is energized. He gives you everything he has for three quarters. Yeah. By the time he gets to that fourth quarters, I think he's emotionally, physically, and mentally spent. And you you look at what happened uh, in that game Monday. He missed a bunny that could have changed the outcome of that game down the stretch. For sure. Uh, um, he's one for ten in fourth quarter shots the last couple of games. And the game Wednesday night, he misses two free throws. He's an excellent free throw shooter. He yeah. missed two crucial free throws down the stretch that could have changed the complexion of that game. So I think he's just spent. You're right. I think he's trying to do too much. But I think he's trying to do too much because I don't think he to totally trusts the people around him when it gets down to crunch time lately. I would 100% agree with you. And yeah. honestly, it's the biggest the biggest contrast between Joel right now and Joel in the regular season is he openly said, he told reporters, like a big difference this season, yeah. I trust the guys around me. I, I'm willing to make the extra pass or throw it across court out of a double team because, you know, 
I know Danny Green is in the opposite corner. I know Seth Curry is waiting to shoot. I know Tobias Harris is ready to, you know, he was in the middle of an all-star level campaign this season. So ball going to him this year, a lot different than Joel kicking it out out of a double team last season where Tobias was, you know, stuck in the mud a little bit. So not seeing that version of Joel these last couple of games has been a, a huge deal for them. And, you know, I, if he gives up the ball and Furkan Korkmaz or Tobias or one of these guys is taking the shots, I don't know that that's any better than him trying to play hero ball against these guys. In a lot of cases, it would probably be worse. But that that's not an excuse for him to totally abandon the team concept when mm. they really need him to, you know, make these other guys better. I, I had to look at the the numbers in the box score several times because I was in disbelief when I saw only two Sixers score the entire second half. It's two, unbelievable. And, you know, I said, wait a minute, let me look at it again. And then I said, let me look at it again. I said, this is, I've never seen this in playoff basketball. Two players, everybody else was like in a witness protection program. You know, no, I, I'm, I'm baffled. How, how, you, you were at the game, correct? Yes. Okay, so you got to talk to Doc Rivers. You got to talk to the players. How did Doc Rivers explain playing two on five the entire second half? You know, I don't, I don't even think that was something that we realized wow. by the time we talked to Doc. And it yeah. was one of those things where you're going over the box score and it's like, holy crap, like how, did, how does that even happen? Like almost by accident in an NBA game, a bunch of guys are going to score. So the fact that that happened at all was like, it, it defied belief. I felt like I was like living in a, a, not a dream, more like a nightmare, I guess, but you're living in like an alternate reality where this is a totally, <laughs> totally different sport being played. But, Doc, you know, Doc didn't really have explanations for much anything. It was a lot of, look, I, I still believe we're going to be back here for game seven, he tried to step around the Ben Simmons free throw issue saying, you know, look in the first half, and this is true. I will say that factually, this is correct. In the first half, when they were hacking Ben, Atlanta wasn't cutting into the lead. The, the Sixers were still able to keep that big lead, even as Ben is having all his issues at the free throw line. But, you know, eventually the psychological warfare that's being played there caught up to them so mm -hmm. that you know i they didn't have any immediate answers whether they have answers when we see them play in atlanta on friday is i guess another story you know i i think basically what it boils down to is this you allowed what should be an inferior opponent to now believe that they can slay a giant because they've won two critical games by by a margin of three points and they did it in dramatic comeback fashion. If anything, you should have buried. If the Sixers win game three, I think the Atlanta Hawks basically mentally pack it in and call it a season, say, hey, we did a great job. You know, we'll build on this and get better next year. Now they're looking at each other, this young team, one of the youngest teams in the league, looking at each other going, we, we can take this team down. So the psychological warfare now is definitely in Atlanta's favor. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I wish I knew who said this or remembered who said this. I thought it was a great point. Yeah. Someone pointed out on Twitter, they said, you know, Trey Young in college is playing in, you know, like Iowa where they don't have anything going on on a game night. Those people right. are packing into that gym and that is the only ticket in town. They are yeah. spewing every piece of venom they have at this kid. And he's giving you 30 and 10 in, in these angry, hostile, tiny gyms around the Midwest. Like, 
do you think he's afraid at this moment? No, he, he was like, I believe he was something like eight for 26 in game four. And instead of wilting, the guy picks up 18 assists. He finds a way to make his team better and to win. He slowed down in game five for, you know, maybe like the first quarter and a half of that game. Mm -hmm. Maybe even you could say the first half. He still ends up with 39 points and ultimately Mm -hmm. controls that game along with Lou Williams when it matters late in the game. Like, this team doesn't have fear. They have a bunch of guys mm-hmm. who are, you know, this, they're playing with house money right now. If, yep. if Atlanta ultimately loses a series, nobody's going to say, oh, well, Trey Young can't get it done and blah, blah, blah. It's look, it's a learning experience. They challenged the number one seed in the East yep. and they ultimately got a bunch of playoff reps that will make them better. The Sixers don't have that luxury. They have a guy who was second in MVP voting. They have a, a, a point guard who was an all NBA player last year was second in defensive player of the year voting. They have Tobias Harris on a $180 million contract. There is no house money. There just simply isn't. So all the pressure continues to be on them. And, and look, Atlanta is going to come out on Friday night, and I expect their best shot from the start of the game. We will see if the Sixers can respond to it. Hey, look, now that brings us to your favorite topic, Ben Simmons. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, my producer, Elvin Shabazian, brought it to my attention that you just wrote an article about Ben, and the article's uh, entitled, uh, The Sixers Are Where They've Always Been, Waiting for Ben Simmons. And I scanned the article before we did this podcast, and the first thing that come to mind is, Kyle's been some serious venom here. <laughs> um, tell, me, tell me the premise of why you wrote the article. And, and it's a great article, great read. I advise everybody to read it. Uh, whether you agree with it or not. And I was looking at a lot of the comments from people uh, uh, behind your article on Twitter. And, you know, a lot of people agree with you. Some want to debate. That's that's what they do on social media. Um, but tell me the thought process going into writing that article. So I, I, I guess sitting down and thinking about, I was, honestly, I didn't know what I was going to write after that game. Yeah. Because you're almost, it's like, this is a an all-time level collapse with so many things that went wrong. And the more I sat there and I thought about it and I listened to what people had to say after the game, the thing I was struck by is, you know, I feel like I've seen this before. And maybe the Sixers have come out victorious in some of those games. And maybe there were reasons outside of Ben Simmons that they gave up these big leads and, you know, a 20 point lead or 25 point lead, whatever it is, turned into a nail biter down the stretch. We obviously could talk about, you know, Brett Brown's influence on the team in past years, how Al Horford screwed things up last year, how they were too young four years ago, whatever it is. But the thing that has been consistent is Ben Simmons. Like Joel Embiid, he certainly plays a part in all this, right? Like we, we talked about him earlier where the turnovers and some of the mental errors and so on and so forth. That stuff is still persisting and it's not excusable for an Mm -hmm. MVP level player. But Joel Embiid has gone from, you know, an all-star level guy to a superstar, like close to best player in the league type guy. Ben Simmons is the same guy that he's always been. And granted, he's a very good player. Like he he contributes a lot all over the floor on a normal night and Trey Young way got the better of him on Wednesday night normal night he's helping to shut down the team's best perimeter player mm-hmm. he's filling up the stat sheet with rebounds assists and so on and so forth but he is so in his own head right now with the free throws that he just simply can't touch the ball in the second half of the games like he is actively 
avoiding the ball. And this is not something that is new. In the first 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 playoff run these guys had together, second round against Boston, he had a one-point game. And that was sort of the nadir of that playoff run, and it showed everything he had to do to, to become the player everyone believed he could be at the time. There's real like – is Ben better than he was then? Yes, because he's a more consistent defensive player. But teams can do the same things to bother him that they could have done in 2017 and 2018. And so when you when you shuffle through coaches, when you completely change the roster, when you know they've even gone through several lead executives from Brian Colangelo uh-huh. to Elton Brand to now who is still involved, but to now to Daryl Morey is the guy overseeing everything. And they all have these different visions for how to build a team and how to best put pieces around these guys. If something stays the same inherently with the team, despite all that, you have to look at the guys who have been there throughout it. And that's that's Joel and that's Ben. And Ben is the guy who has made no visible progress on offense, who has the most obvious flaw of anybody on the roster, really like. You could argue anybody in the league, there's no more obvious flaw than his lack of perimeter game. And so that was, look, there are a ton of other stories coming out of that game. I agree with the, there are people that push back and said, well, he's not the only guy mm-hmm. who was at fault. I 100% agree with you. I, I think everybody who failed last night deserves to be called out for it. But Ben is the point guard of this team. He's supposed to be the leader of this team. And when they fall apart consistently in these moments, the perimeter leader of this team is ultimately the guy who is going to catch the blame. And that's just, that's how I see the sport. And, you know, that's just how it is for me. Okay. So who's more to blame for Ben's lack of ability to take his game to that next level? Is it the player himself or is it the coaching not pushing, pushing him in the right direction? I would say, you know, it's column A, column B. I I think some of the, I'll, I tend to skew toward it, uh, players have to motivate themselves and they have to, to want to be great. Like the guys who truly hit that, that hall of fame, all time level. Great are not necessarily like they're helped by coaches. Certainly. And having the right guy with them from the beginning of their career can make all the difference in the world. I would hundred percent agree with that assessment, but to actually want to be great and to put in the work and not just put in the work, but actually be willing to let yourself try and fail on the biggest stage. Mm -hmm. That to me is the biggest indictment of Simmons. I I think some people get it twisted and say, you know, what is this guy doing in the off season? He's not putting work. He's not doing this because he has sort of like a, a Hollywood type image. I don't think the problem is that Ben Simmons isn't working. Like I I do think that guy cares about his team. I think the problem is he is so afraid of public failure that he's not willing to apply the work he's doing away from the floor and live with the results during the game. And that creates this really toxic environment where Mm -hmm. he just kind of sledgehammers through life or, or through basketball, at least thinking that the one way he's always done this is always going to be the way. And it gets them through a lot of wins in the regular season. He looks great against a team that can't defend in round one in Washington. And then he's ultimately left against a better team in round two. He's a, he's a passenger in the game and you just, you can't be there now to, to your point though, about coaching, I, I think doc rivers throughout the year has gone over the top trying to defend Ben. And I do think we saw both sides of it with Brett Brown before Doc too, right? Like 
Brett had a relationship with Simmons's family. He named him the point guard, even though Ben was a forward before he uh, made the jump to the NBA. Mm-hmm. And they empowered him. They said, look, you're going to run the team. And they eventually handed this guy a max level extension. And there was sort of the him or me sort of deal with Jimmy Butler, where Jimmy Butler didn't want to be in a situation where he's got to play away from the ball with Ben Simmons at point guard. And there have been all these decisions made over the years. At the same time, Brett Brown came out and said, I want a three-pointer a game from Ben Simmons minimum. And Ben just totally ignored him. So they've like all sorts of things have been tried here with Ben. There has been tough love where they said, look, I need this from you. I need more from you. And he hasn't given it. Now, whether that's an indictment on the coaches themselves or Ben listening to them, I don't know how to weigh that, but a long way of saying it, it's some of it is on Ben and some of it is on everybody else around him. If I'm 6'10 and nine times out of 10, I have a mismatch and we've seen Ben do it in the past. He can be lethal when you slash into the hole. He can be lethal. Absolutely. I think he's very creative. I don't understand. I think, I think Ben psychologically is spent. You know, players always talk about, oh, I don't listen to the outside criticism. And, and in my perspective, in the time that I've been in the media, most of the time that's a lie. Because yeah. whether they hear it directly themselves or not, they have a circle, inner circle of people who tell them, hey, this is what they're saying about you on the radio. This is what is written about you by this particular guy in print. This is what they're saying about you on TV. And then if you don't go out there and produce and it gets worse instead of better, I think psychologically, it just wears you down to the point you become an afraid player. And I think that's where we are with the Ben Simmons. Um, his defense, okay, we'll give him that. But in this game, in this day and age, especially when you're making that kind of money, you got to be more productive on offense. And I think Ben's afraid to produce on offense or at least at least try. Right. And, and that's the thing, right? If he went out there and he was missing threes and he's stepping out of his comfort zone, right. you could say, all right, look, this is a guy who was trying to be the player that everyone seems to want him to be and thinks he should be. But that's not happening. This is we're seeing the same Ben Simmons that we've seen for four seasons. And so eventually you have to say to yourself, look, this is who this guy is. Mm. I don't know how you get through to him. I don't know if you ever get through to him. Maybe that means you have to part ways and, you know, he figures it out somewhere else and you regret it forever. Like, I don't know if that's the answer. Maybe we'll have that conversation at some point this off season, but look like you have to, like I've said this several times in articles I've written throughout the year at a certain point, we're the crazy ones for expecting him to change. Right. Because right. he's showing you, this is who I am. And doc rivers is saying, I'm okay with who he is. So if there, he's showing you that and the head coach is telling you that, and you're still expecting Ben to be, you know, closer to the LeBron types that he was compared to coming out of college. I, I think that's on you at this point. Not you specifically, D-Gun, but yep. just broadly speaking. <laughs> <laughs> where, where, where's, where's the bench help with this team? I mean, they get outscored 39-13, again, by a younger team that's trying to find its way. And, and you're talking about guys coming off a bench uh, that have been around for a while for the most part. Where is this bench help? I, I, I don't get this at all. It's brutal. And, you know, so this is probably where I would put more blame on Doc Rivers. I just I don't think he's thinking about things 
creatively enough. They they tried to go all bench to start this series. Yeah, was a disaster and has been a disaster for basically the entire season. First adjustment is saying, okay, we sub Tobias out early, and he is effectively it's him and the four amigos on the yep. bench, and yep. he's got to be the guy. Now Tobias has not been good in that role in this series, and the the downstream effect of that is. You know, I don't know what you do exactly, because if if you say, OK, we need Ben with that second unit too, the lineups with Ben Simmons and Dwight Howard this year have been a complete disaster. Right. And so at this point, you have to say, are we willing to experiment with something like small ball? Are we willing to say, hey, Ben, you're the five and we're just going to run, 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 spread it out around you and try to win that way? Maybe that's better than what they're doing. And maybe that's where you say, look, Doc just has to be more flexible, more creative, whatever it is, but they don't really have a lot of outs. Like they've, they have guards who are supposed to be good. Like George Hill has been one of the biggest disappointments of the playoffs. I agree. He's a a veteran guy who allegedly is coming in here and his whole career has been the stable, you know, combo one, two guard who can be a playmaker, but he's also a great catch and shoot player fits into any lineup. He doesn't look like he even knows where he's supposed to be half of the time right now. And that's the guy who's supposed to be like the smart, intelligent backup playmaker for you. So when that happens and you're asking, you know, Shake Milton and Tyrese Maxey, the latter of whom is a 20 year old rookie, that they're the ones who ultimately have to take over that second unit and sort of direct traffic. You're just asking for failure. And and despite the fact that Shake actually gave them at least a couple of good performances in this series. I just, they, they look totally out of their depth and the fact that they haven't been able to figure something better out, is just, it's an indictment on everybody. One of Doc Rivers coaching strategies in uh, game five that just baffles me is, all right, the Atlanta Hawks, you get a feel they're starting to make a run. They're still at a distance, but they're starting to make a run. You take Joel and Seth Curry out of the game at the same time. Yeah. Now, but, I mean, I understand. Give them rest. But you can't take them both out of the game no. at the same time. They're the only two guys scoring points for you. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it's baffling. And, and that goes back to in game one when they went down by a ton early. Yeah. That's when Doc decided, hey, you know what? I'm bringing in the all-bench lineup now instead of trying to, look, we got to stop the bleeding. I know I had a plan coming into the game, but I had to adjust to the situation at hand here. Like that, you know, I think you always want a coach to be proactive versus reactive, right? You want them to see the problems happening before they happen. I don't think Doc Rivers has even been reactive in this series. I think he's just, you know, this is what I was going to do. I'm throwing out the lineups at the time I thought I was going to. And, you know, I'm just letting the chips fall where they may. He's not even responding. There was a the Atlanta went on a run beginning of the fourth quarter last night. He called a timeout and it's like, oh, they're going to change the lineup. The starters are coming back in. He still left a bunch of a bunch of the bench guys out there to for the lead to dwindle even more. It's crazy. So now we sit here and the 76ers are in a dark three to two hole. Do they climb out of that hole and see a ray of sunlight in game six or where the Hawks put the final dirt on top of the hole and just bury their season? If I had to bet on it, I would yeah. say that that was, that was the last hurrah last night. Like I, I find that hard to come back from a loss like that, especially right. at home. And especially like we were talking amongst the media last night that that loss almost felt worse than when they lost to Toronto 
in game seven a couple years ago, mm-hmm. not because it was a more heartbreaking loss, but because you could say that game seven loss was like, you know, they, they almost beat the team that eventually won the title. Kawhi mm-hmm. was unbelievable. And the Sixers core is still young and still like we can sell the upside here. That game last night felt like this could be the end of this era of mm. Embiid and Simmons. Like this, this might be a breaking point where they say, look, we're moving on from Ben and we're going to look for somebody who can win with Joel right now. Not somebody who we have to figure out if he can even be on the floor and touch the ball in the second half of a game. So with those kind of, that kind of air hanging over the team, I don't know if they feel that. I don't know if they right, feel that right. way. They they all talked a, a good game. Well, Embiid didn't because he didn't speak to reporters after the game. But they all were like, look, we're going in there <clears throat> with the intent to win on uh, on Friday and bring this back home for game seven. But that is a really, really tough loss to try to come back from. See, the only problem now with a Ben Simmons-type trade is if you trade him in the latter stages of a season, whatever the case may be, you get a lot more. The more he plays right now, the more he devalues himself. And exactly. uh, basically, you get basically nothing for him in return if you try to trade him in the offseason. So he's he's got the Sixers handcuffed right now in terms of how people <laughs> view him on the outside looking in. Right. It, I saw people immediately after the game. A lot of fans are saying stuff like, can't wait to trade him for Dame Lillard. It's like, dude, <laughs> dude, do you know, you know Portland's <laughs> executives are watching this game too, right? Like they have the same cable subscription you do. They they see exactly how this game is playing out. If you think you're getting Dame Lillard for anything other than the entire franchise and the arena that you play in, like, good luck. You know, um, Doc Rivers, not that long ago, People were arguing in his favor. He should have been coach of the year. Now people want to run Doc Rivers out of <laughs> Philadelphia on the first ticket to Casablanca somewhere. If, if the Sixers bow out to the Atlanta Hawks, is Doc Rivers on the hot seat considering his playoff history? I would think no. And part okay. of that is because I think my read of the situation is that part of why Doc was brought in was because yep. that was a palatable hire to Mr. Embiid specifically. Yep. Like if you read, if you read the tea leaves of everything they did last offseason, a lot of it was catered toward making the big guy happy after he was very unhappy with the way things ended at the end of last season. And, you know, maybe he would turn on Doc Rivers after this year and the way things went. I, I doubt it. I don't think he's, that reactive i think he's more he skews more toward look let's let's come back and get it right especially after they had such a great uh regular season number one seed season but you know i i will say this daryl morey came in after doc rivers was hired and you know you know as well as anybody a lot of times when the executive comes to town and it's not quote unquote their coach their guy that's right when things go south that is the first place they are looking. So, you know, I that's not to say I don't think I think the relationship is good there. I think overall Daryl has liked what Doc is doing. But, you know, would it be the most shocking thing in the world if for some reason they decide we can't deal with another playoff choke <laughs> job? <laughs> no, I like it, everything is on the table. Let's say that. All right. You, you just mentioned Daryl Morey. Um, you know what kind of style of, of ball he wants, the kind of players that he wants. If they bow out prematurely to Atlanta, do you think he makes wholesale changes or minor tweaks on his roster in the offseason? 
if they go if they lose game six and they look bad yeah. doing so, yep. even if they look okay doing so, I think anybody not named Joel Embiid on this roster is potentially available. I, I think Daryl Morey, his whole philosophy is look, if you have shots at a title, if you have even like a five percent chance to win a title, he has said publicly, you owe it to yourself and to the mm-hmm. players responsible for that to go for it. And so if you think like, look, we all know what Joel Embiid's health situation is. Yep. It's a, you're a constantly worried, like this might be it. We don't know. He could have another major injury tomorrow or next week or next month. And his prime could be done. Like he might not be the same player anymore. And so if you know that, and you think, look, we might have a few years here where we can really go for it. You basically owe it to yourself and to Joel to say, we're putting everybody on the mm-hmm. table. We'll go, we'll go and get whoever we can get. And we're making a run at this because we know you're probably not going to hold up into your mid to late thirties. Like a lot of these guards and forwards, like, you know, Chris Paul having his Renaissance in recent years, LeBron being able to play deep into his thirties. Like I, I don't think realistically you can think Joel Embiid is going to be one of those type of guys. Mm-hmm. So you have to go into this off season if there's a spectacular collapse, which they they look to be in the process of completing, I don't know how you can look at the future and say status quo is okay. Does an early exit strain the relationship between Joel and the decision makers in the organization? That's an interesting question. Um, maybe only in the sense that look, they didn't they didn't push all their chips in at the deadline. They said right. George Hill is going to be enough. They were in talks really up until the final hour on Kyle Lowry, who, you know, maybe they should have pushed their chips in there. He, he certainly would be uh, able to touch the ball in crunch time, which is pretty important <laughs> for anybody who's running the team as a point guard. But, right. you know, I, I think they've probably done enough over the last year to show him, look, we, we care about you and your input mm-hmm. and what you want and what you need. We're willing to cater to you. I, I think Joel, generally speaking, likes the organization and the team and the, the city for that matter. Like he's mostly happy here. He had his first son here and all that. But, you know, you never know. Like after a long, like, again, this is all hypothetically speaking. Maybe they mm-hmm. pulled this out of the fire and we're, we're talking about Sixers Nets soon enough. But if this goes the way it's looking right now. Right. It's hard to predict how these guys are going to react, especially a guy who is as competitive as Embiid is. And oh, by the way, he's more aware of his long-term vulnerability and how long he probably has to compete for a title than anybody else is. He's the one who feels the pain and deals with the knee issues and the back and the feet and all that. He knows he's got to go soon, if not now. All right. The million-dollar question, in your expert opinion, is this the most epic collapse in Philadelphia sports history? Game five. Keep in mind, I'm stacking it up against the Eagles getting shocked by Tampa Bay in the 2002 playoffs. And there are some people that still say they see the ghost of Rondé Barber running down the sideline with that interception. That is still like, and I have said to you, I gave up fandom many moons yep. ago now. Yep. But that is still the most haunting memory of my sports childhood. Is that- <laughs> That Tampa game, they're closing out the bet. Yep. Ryan Mitchell returns the opening kick, and the, the crowd is going crazy. And uh, that, so here's what I would say that yep. game was less of a collapse than it was Tampa just kind of outplaying them over the course of the game. 
this one in terms of like a collapse it was much more significant and i i I think i forget i'm trying to remember the number now there was a stat after the game that in the last 25 years the sixers were 162 and 0 if 165 and 0 165 and 0 if they go up 25 points or more so to be the one to be (laughs) for it to be the one in a playoff game at home as the number one seed with a guy playing on a torn meniscus who scored 37 points anyway. Yeah. That is, that is really hard to top, not just in Philadelphia sports, but you know, sports generally speaking. Now I know, uh, I know Sixers are your primary beat, but I'm also told you cover some Eagles at times as well. A little All bit. Right. It's I, I mostly am. Uh, I just do like game day stories okay. and okay. I, I fire off some takes after games. <laughs> All right, Jimmy I, 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 Kemsky is our guy at Philip okay. Royce, and he does a great job. All right, so I, I'm tired of talking about the depressing Sixers right now. <laughs> Hopefully they can talk, they can give us something positive to Fair talk enough. about in the days to come. All right, Philadelphia Eagles, give me your general perspective uh, on the direction they're going in now. New head coach, Nick Sirianni. Nick Foles gone. Doug, Doug Peterson gone. Uh, they got this new high-profile draft pick, Devonta Smith, coming in to go along with Jalen Rager, Quez Watkins, and all these guys. Um, we're not expecting them to be a playoff team, but could they be an, an entertaining team? Considering we don't we don't even know yet what kind of offense uh, Nick Sirianni is going to build around Jalen Hurts. Right, and I think that's probably why you could get a little bit a let a little bit emphasis on a little bit yeah, here. Yeah. Excited about this Eagles team because they are sort of a mystery box team. It's a new coaching staff who they're going to see what they can do with not only the guys that were already on hand, but, you know, the new guys, including Devonta Smith, who I very much enjoyed watching tear up the SEC over the last couple of seasons, you know, stood out even amongst an Alabama receiver room that was absolutely overfilled with talent. Right. Right. Um, I, you know, I I go into this year with little expectations, but I'm excited to see what Jalen Hurts can do with a full off season and, you know, probably some improved weaponry around him. I would say this. I, I think last year, Carson Wentz, you could tell, was just for both sides, they needed to move on. It was just a, a toxic situation. And I think Jalen Hurts, at least in terms of the intangibles and the leadership qualities that you want in a quarterback who is the face of the organization, is the guy who's got to carry you through tough times and fourth quarter comebacks and preserving leads and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. I think he's just a, a cool customer. I, I don't know if I trust his arm and, you know, his accuracy and all that stuff, but I, I think generally speaking, I'm cautiously optimistic they'll, that they'll at least put an entertaining product on the field, which, you know, they were not that, and they were not good last year, which is a bad combination. What do you think they should do with that? Zach Ertz? Should they, let him walk out of respect or should they try to embrace him and, and, and have him come back and, and help this young nucleus out? I, I, you know, I guess that's ultimately going to come down to whether he's really willing yeah. to come back because, yeah. you know, knowing Zach Ertz, he's a guy who would probably, if you asked him on the record and in front of the cameras, he would say, look, I'm, I signed a contract. I'm here. I'm going to give my best to the team and so on and so forth. But, you know, inside, if he's a guy who wants to leave, 
it, it's better for not just you, but for Zach Ertz to move right. on. Because if you're not getting 100% commitment, there's no reason to have somebody here. I think you've seen that, that the NBA parallel there is, you know, Blake Griffin's getting paid a ton of money in Detroit, didn't want to be there, looked awful. And now he's in Brooklyn making, you know, minimum salary money as a role player. Yeah. And suddenly, you know, with a little motivation again, he looks like an NBA player again. So, you know, that's a thing that I can't weigh from right. mostly on the outside. That's conversations that they need to have amongst Zach and the staffers there. But if he buys in, then I don't see why you wouldn't keep him around. All right. There you have it. Kyle Newbeck. Uh, Sixers beat reporter for the Philly voice. Uh, I advise everybody to follow him, uh, read his material, especially the latest scathing article on <laughs> Ben Simmons. I love it. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking some time to be on gun on one man. Much appreciated. And, and don't be surprised. You get another call, another call down the road, uh, to hang out with D gun for, for a little while on, on the gun on one podcast. Hey, anytime. I appreciate you having me on. It was great talking to you. All right, man, that'll wrap up this latest edition of Gun on One brought to you by Patterson Square Garden. Uh, I'm Derek Gunner for Kyle Newbeck. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us and listening in. You can always listen in wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, as I always tell you, stay blessed out there, especially in the times we live in right now. But more importantly, be a blessing to each and every person you encounter. Until next time, so long, everybody. of D-Gun Enterprises in Patterson Square Garden. Elvin Shabazian and Wes Pendleton are the executive producers on behalf of Patterson Square Garden. Lead producer is Derek Gunn. Associate producer is John McNeil. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Elvin Shabazian. Original music by Weatherman. For more information about the podcast, visit gunonone.com. And please, don't forget to subscribe and give us a positive rating if you're feeling the show. Thank you. say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.